Good evening. Well, this evening we'll be finishing up our series of studies in First Chronicles. You can turn with me to First Chronicles, and uh, you can turn to chapter 28. First Chronicles 28, we're going to look at the last two chapters this evening. And as you're turning there, I want to, I want to mention something, because when we talk about the, the, the temple, Solomon's temple, we call it Solomon's temple because God chose Solomon to build it. But what we're going to see tonight in chapters 28 and 29 is it's probably more appropriately called David's temple. Even though David was not allowed to build the temple, David did everything except break ground. You're going to see that really the one who was behind its building, its design, although God designed it through David, it was David who provided the plans. It was David that provided the supplies. It was David who was behind building the temple. Solomon, in obedience to the Lord and also his father's charge, built the temple, and so he gets credit for building it. But I think we're going to see tonight that David truly desired to worship the Lord in a house, not in a tent as he had the opportunity to do throughout his life, but in a, a, in a house, in a, in a permanent structure. And because of this, his heart was just bent on making sure that that actually happens someday. Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this evening, may we grow closer to you. May we understand that David's passion for worship needs to be our passion for worship. That we need to desire to be in your house worshiping you and glorifying you with our lives with the same zeal and passion that David had. David who said he was glad when they said to him, let us go to the house of the Lord. David who said he wanted to spend all of his time in the presence of the Lord. Lord, may we have that same heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in uh, the beginning of chapter 28, we'll look at the first seven verses. David publicly proclaims his desire for the temple to be built, and this is in the last year of his reign. So he knows that he's older. He knows that he's not going to be around much longer. But what he really wants to make sure is that everyone knows his heart's desire to build the temple. We read in verses 1 through 7, David summoned all the officials of Israel to assemble at Jerusalem. The officers over the tribes and commanders of the divisions of the service of the king, and the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of all the property and livestock belonging to the king and his sons, together with the palace officials, the mighty men, and all the brave warriors. King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God, and I made plans to build it. But God said to me, You are not to build a house for my name, because you are a warrior and have shed blood. Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me from my whole family to be king over Israel forever. He chose Judah as a leader, and from the house of Judah he chose my family, and from my father's sons he was pleased to choose or to make me king over all Israel. Of all my sons, and the Lord has given me many, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, Solomon, your son is the one who will build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. 
I will establish his kingdom forever if he is unswerving in carrying out my commands and laws as is being done at this time. And so there's David's heart as he makes this proclamation in verses 1 through 7. He proclaims his desire and he commands all the leaders, all the leaders of Israel to support Solomon in building the temple. Everyone with a position of leadership was brought together and David made this very clear. This is my heart's desire. This is what God would have you to do. He truly desired to build a temple, a temple for the ark in Jerusalem, and he planned to do so. As we see, and as we've seen, his career as a warrior disqualified him from building the temple. He was a great and mighty warrior, but he was a man of blood. He was a vicious man. He was a man who killed a lot of people, and God just felt it wasn't the right person. He wasn't the right person. It wasn't right to have a warrior build the house of prayer. And so, he had been chosen from the tribe of Judah and from his father's sons to be king over Israel, but it was his son Solomon who had been chosen to succeed him as king over Israel. And he confirms that the Lord had called Solomon instead to build the temple. Now, his son's success, Solomon's success, would be contingent upon his keeping the law of the Lord. As you and I, as we keep the law of the Lord, that is, as we obey God's word, we will be prosperous. We will be successful. Amen? We know that as we obey God's word, that brings blessing. Same was true for Solomon. And David charged these leaders to follow all of the Lord's commands and mentioned that they would be blessed to possess the land and pass it on to their descendants if they did. Look at verse 8. He says, so now I charge you, he says to these leaders, in the sight of all Israel and of the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of our God, be careful to follow all the commands of the Lord your God. And here's the blessing. Though you may possess this good land and pass it on as an inheritance to your descendants forever. So there's the blessing, the legacy of a life lived for God. The legacy is you pass it on to your descendants, spiritual and biological. You pass it on to those that you invest in. You pass on your faith and a good testimony so that when you are called up yonder, when you're called into the presence of the Lord, you leave behind a legacy of faith and prosperity and blessing in the Lord because of his word and obedience to it. Amen? That truly is what we would call a wonderful life. That truly is what we desire as men and women of God. And then he goes on in verse 9 to charge his son Solomon. He says, And you, my son Solomon, and he did this in front of all the leaders, and you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. That's really interesting. If you seek him, if you seek him, it says, you will be blessed. He will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. That is, if you utterly forsake the Lord, you cannot receive his blessings. And that begins to explain for us why some people in this life receive God's blessings and some people don't. If you know the Lord, if you have a relationship with God, you are eligible, can I use that word, eligible to receive the blessings of God. But if you don't, if you reject God, you forfeit the blessings that could be yours. Very simple principle. Now, after charging his son Solomon to build the temple once he became king, or excuse me, after 
charging him to follow the Lord's commands and serve him wholeheartedly, he charged his son to build the temple once he became king. Look, verse 10 says, Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build the temple as a sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. Get it done. Do what I'm asking you to do, what God has called you to do. Follow through. You know, I've noticed in this world there are successful people, and there are people who never find success. And one of the keys to success is doing the work. Doing the work. Hard work. Hard work. It's not something most people love, but actually hard work is something that most people don't know anything about, unfortunately. In our country today, hard work isn't really held in the high esteem that it once was, you know? I think we need to remember that, that, that hard work, while not an attractive thing, and most people are trying to get away from it, you know, they want the cushy job, they, they want to retire early, but that hard work brings its own rewards. For one thing, if you work hard, you don't have to go to the gym as much. People spend all their time, oh, i got to get in shape, oh, i got to do this, i, I got to take care of myself. Well, if you worked hard, you probably wouldn't have to worry as much about that, right? You know, hard work, well, hard work, well, not something most people desire. It usually looks like someone dressed in overalls and, and, and working hard. It looks like exactly what it sounds like. And many times we're blessed and are successful when we work hard. And so he tells his son, who is the king, is going to be king, work hard, be strong, do the work. I have very little tolerance for or patience for Lazy people. I'm just going to be honest with you. My grandma used to always tell everybody I started my paper out at 8. Of course, that wasn't true. She exaggerated a fair amount, but it was actually 11 and a half. And I've been working ever since. And I'm not afraid of hard work, and I thank God that I have the physical frame to be able to continue to work into my 50s and work hard. But, uh, you know, though I didn't start at 8, at 11 and, a half, 11 and a half, I realized, you know, if you work hard, if you do the work, you get paid. Have, has, has anyone noticed that? But we live in a country where people get paid without working. That doesn't work out really well with the psyche, does it? See, we're by nature lazy sinners. So if you tell us, well, you can stay home and make more money, like we saw over the last two, two years at certain points throughout this last pandemic, you know, it, it, really, it, it really does damage to the fabric of our society and to the psyche and to the work ethic of our populace, as we know all too well. There's this thing called the Great Resignation that took place over the last year or so. I read about it online. All these people quit their jobs. I guess because if you quit your job, you made more money staying home, or people just didn't want to work hard, or they were afraid to get sick. But now they said, and I just saw this poll, and who knows how true these polls are, that apparently 70% of all the people that were part of the Great Resignation now regret having left their jobs. Oh, surprise, surprise. Guess what happened? The money got cut off. Would you really want to live, think about this, answer this question carefully, would you really want to live in a country where the guy who sits home and looks at you from, from inside his window makes the same amount of money as you who go to work 40, 50, 60 hours a week? Do you really want to live in that world? Do you really want to live in that culture? Well, sadly, many of us have had to over these last few months, and it, it, it doesn't work out very well for the person who's lazy. Laziness, as you can find out by reading the Bible, it's not held in high esteem. It is not something that we would want to promote. In fact, slothfulness or laziness is talked about in the Scriptures as a great sin. In fact, in classic literature, it was 
one of the seven deadly sins. So you need to understand something. Work hard. Amen? Okay. So that's what he tells his son. Good advice. David gave a lot of really good advice here. And then he provided Solomon with the necessary plans to build the temple. Look what it says in verses 11 through 12. And I found this very interesting. Then David gave his son Solomon the plans for the portico of the temple, its buildings, its storerooms, its upper parts, its inner rooms, and the place of atonement. He gave him the plans. Now notice this. He gave him the plans in verse 12 of all that the Spirit had put in his mind for the courts of the temple of the Lord and all the surrounding rooms for the treasuries of the temple of God and for the treasuries for the dedicated things. You see, what we learn there is that God was the one that gave David the plans. The Spirit, God the Spirit, inspired David, who drafted up the plans. So yes, I do believe it's fair to say, even though Solomon built the temple, you can easily call it David's temple. Now, David then provided Solomon with the instructions for the temple priests, the Levites, and the sacred articles. He didn't end with just the the, the structure. He went on to design the entire worship system in the temple in Jerusalem, even though he never lived to see it built. Verse 13, we'll read from verses 13 to 18. He gave him, that is Solomon, instructions for the divisions of the priests and Levites, and for all the work of serving in the temple of the Lord, as well as for all the articles to be used in its service. He designed the weight of gold, or excuse me, he designated the weight of gold for all the gold articles to be used in various kinds of service, and the weight of the silver for all the silver articles to be used in various kinds of service, the weight of the gold, or weight of gold for the gold lampstands and their lamps, and the weight for each lampstand and its lamps, and the weight of silver for each silver lampstand and its lamps, according to the use of each lampstand. The weight of gold for the, each table was con- for the consecrated bread. The weight of silver for the silver tables. The weight of pure gold for the forks, sprinkling bowls, pitchers. The weight of gold for each gold dish. The weight of silver for each silver dish. And the weight of the refined gold for the altar of incense. He also gave him the plan for the chariot, that is, the, uh, the cherubim of gold, that spread their wings and shelter the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So all of the furniture, in addition to the workers, all of the designs required to do the decorating, if you will, of the temple, David was the designer. David, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, with the creativity that God gave him, used his creative gifts to glorify God. Very creative guy. David was a bit of a Renaissance man. He could go out on the battlefield and kill a giant, then he could come home and write a song about it, you know? And he could also design, and, and, and he was just a very, very passionate man, and he expressed that passion in many ways. And so we see that here. All of the priests, the articles, the Levites. And David, David had received all the details of the plan to build the temple, and he received it, as we've said, directly from the Lord. Now, Moses had received the plans for the tabernacle directly from the Lord. And Moses, in the book of Exodus, recorded what God told him. David just summarized and said, this is what God told me to do, and then presented the plans. Though the plans are not given to us, we don't have those plans. We have some of the details throughout the scripture, uh, and we've read some of them through, in and through First Chronicles. And we will see more of those plans revealed in Second Chronicles, as Solomon actually builds the temple. 
So as we look at this, realize all of this was communicated from the Lord. Look at verse 19. All this David said, I have in writing from the hand of the Lord upon me, and he gave me understanding in all the details of the plan. So David was a prophet. David was a worshiper. David was a king. David was a shepherd. Very few things that David was not, but he was not going to build the temple. David was, in fact, the person that received this revelation from God as to what the temple would look like. Now, later temples were built based on man's creativity. Uh, that is, when you, when you look at the temple that was rebuilt during the uh, Persian occupation, when, when the children of Israel came back to the land, they rebuilt the temple. Uh, that temple was very different than this temple. It was modest in comparison. Later on, about a, within 100 years of Jesus' birth, uh, we had Herod sort of renovate the temple, kind of took it apart and rebuilt it, and it was much more beautiful. But again, who inspired that? That was Herod's idea as to what the temple should look like. And so we had the temple, and then that temple, of course, destroyed in 70 AD. So when the temple is rebuilt again, and I believe it will be, the scriptures are very clear on this, I wonder, I, I don't know, but I wonder, I, I suppose that it will be rebuilt by Jews who faithfully love God but may not know him as Jesus. So it's possible that the temple is rebuilt again according to man's standards and man's design. But when that temple is desecrated in the middle of the seven, 70th week of Daniel or the seven years of tribulation, uh, and then it is rebuilt in the time of the millennium, and Ezekiel begins to describe at the end of his book the new temple, the, the millennial temple, you can bet that that design is clearly from God. So the first temple, clearly designed by God, the others after that, not so much, but the last temple will also be built and designed by God. Something to think about. Okay. So David repeated his charge to his son Solomon to build the temple once he became king. It's recorded again. You know, dads have a way of repeating themselves. Isn't this true? We have any fathers here? Have you repeated yourself in the last 24 hours? Uh, yeah. Why is that? Because if they listened the first time, you wouldn't have to say it again, right? It's okay. So here's what we read in verse 20. David also said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do the work. Sound familiar? Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the temple of the Lord is finished. The divisions of the priests and the Levites are ready for all the work on the temple of God, and every willing man skilled in any craft will help you in all the work. The officials and all the people will obey your every command. Now, you can easily see how committed to this project David was. I, I, I think it was probably extremely hard for David to restrain himself from just saying, you know, why don't we start building now? You know, I'm still here. Well, why don't you build? I'll watch. No, that's not what God had in mind. Solomon was going to build the temple after David went home to be with the Lord. That's, that was God's plan, and that's what happened. But you can see that David was passionate about it. Solomon had to be strong and courageous about doing the work. And if you're going to do a work that God has called you to do, you have to be strong. And you have to be courageous. 
Now, I'm just going to say a couple things, because when times get tough in our world, as they have been over the last two years, and even before that, and certainly now, there were many who called for us to be, or how you say it, play it safe, to be cautious. And I agree to a degree that makes sense. But there's never a time where you're doing the work of God where you don't need to be strong and courageous. So you can, you can be courageous without being reckless. And I think a lot of people folded in doing the work of the Lord over the last two years. In fact, I know it's true, and it's sad. And I think the voice of David, the voice of the Spirit, would speak to us today and say, be strong and courageous and do the work. Do the work. He must not be afraid or discouraged in doing the work, for the Lord was with him. He could trust that the Lord would ensure that the work would be completed Some people don't want to start something because they think, well, how do we know we'll be able to finish it? When God is with you, you will finish it because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Amen? He could count on the priests, the Levites, the craftsmen, the officials, and all the people to do the work. Solomon had all the help he needed. Well, then David provided Solomon with the resources. Because if you're like me, you're thinking, that's great, Dad. Got the plans got the staff, got the designs, got all that we need. Well, how about the bank account? How are we going to pay for all of this? Where are we going to get all that gold and silver we talked about? Well, you know, it's kind of nice when your dad asks you to do something, your dad happens to be wealthy, isn't it? I want to remind you that your father has the cattle on a thousand hills. The Lord, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That is, if God calls you to do something, you have all the resources, every resource you need to accomplish his will. Can I hear an amen? You realize that? You realize that? Do you realize God is not poor? Shame on the pastors who make God out to be poor. That every time they receive an offering or preach a sermon about money, they make God seem like a beggar out on the street Poor God, if we don't give to the church, God can't get his work done. Shame on them. Shame on them. That's a travesty to portray God as anything but having all the earthly riches of the universe. With God, all things are possible. Well, anyway, here we are in verses 1 through 9. I believe that's where we want to look next, see where we're at. Yeah, verses 1 through 9. David provided Solomon with the necessary resources. Let's read. Chapter 29. Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great, because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. With all my resources I have provided for the temple of my God, gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, Bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, and wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stone and marble, all of these in large quantities. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasuries, treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God, over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple, 3,000 talents of gold, gold of Ophir, which was the finest gold, pure gold, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the buildings 
for the gold work and the silver work and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now, who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? He asks them. Then the leaders of families and officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds and officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. You want to underline that word willingly or at least put that in your head. Never give to God what you don't want to give. Never give to God what you don't want to give. God is not interested in anything from you that you're not willingly offering to him. They gave toward the work on the temple of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 darics of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. Any who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel, the Gershonite. And the people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely. You want to put that word in your brain too. Willingly and freely. Freely, and look at this word, wholeheartedly to the Lord. So willingly, freely, wholeheartedly. You know, that doesn't sound like most churches when they receive an offering. Have you heard those stories of someone pastor up speaking, receiving an offering, and they lock the back doors, and they say, no one's leaving until we get $1,000? Well, that's not going to happen tonight. David the king also rejoiced greatly. David the king also rejoiced greatly. So all the people worshiped, and they rejoiced because of the, uh, as it says, the response of their leaders. Look at that, the leaders. The leaders are an example because it was the leaders that had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. Hmm. There's a sermon in there somewhere. So what I know is that this is David recognizing it's God's work and then allowing for God to do the work through others because God wants to work through us. God wants to work through people. He could do the work. He could snap his fingers and say, let there be a temple and there'll be a temple. But there's a process, and he wants to co-labor with you, and he wants you to be a part of it. But you have to do that willingly, freely, wholeheartedly. You have to make yourself available to God and say, God, I do want to do the work that you're telling me to do. I do want to work hard for you. I do want to accomplish great things as you accomplish them through me. But you have to be a participant and a willing participant at that. And if you are, God will do great things in and through your life. So, David knew that his son was too young and inexperienced to complete this task alone. That's not a criticism of Solomon. It's just the truth. Solomon was young. So he gave Solomon large amounts of gold, silver, bronze, iron, precious stones, stone, stone, and marble. And you see, all that he needed, and he challenged the leaders, as we've seen, to follow his example. And that's it. If the top guy does something, the leaders usually follow. And that's what happened. They followed him in his example of consecration to the Lord. And they willingly gave large amounts of gold, silver, bronze, iron, precious stones as well. Now, it, this mention of a derrick, it's kind of interesting. Uh, you probably have never heard that word before, and it doesn't show up anywhere else in Scripture for a reason. A derrick was actually a Persian coin, and it wasn't in use at the time of David right? It's, it's as if we were talking about something that took place a thousand years ago, and we described the currency as dollars or cents. It would be a way of sort of 
helping people to understand how much the value was. But clearly, a thousand years ago, there were no U.S. dollars or cents, right? Well, the situation here is that a darak was a, a Persian coin. It wasn't in use at David's time. It didn't exist. The author simply used an equivalent monetary term familiar to his readers after the exile because when Ezra was compiling this history to encourage the Jews and specifically the Levites and the priests to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, he is familiar with the Darek. He was living in Persia. He understood what that, and his, that meant, and what his readers would understand is that a Darek is worth a certain amount. So the fact that that's used, it doesn't mean that it's not the word of God. It's, even though it's anachronistic, it's anachronistic because of when it was written. That is, it, it doesn't seem to be in the right place in time. So I only point that out because sometimes people will point to words like that and say, see, you can't trust the word of God. If anything, it makes you see you can trust the word of God because the guy who compiled the book was living in Persia. So enough of that. The people rejoiced at their leader's willingness to freely give to the Lord, again, with their whole hearts, and David rejoiced as well. Then we get to verse 10, and here we see David do what David does best. He publicly praised the Lord in the presence of all the people of Israel. Let's read verses 10 through 20. In verse 10, it says, David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Remember that. Your God isn't poor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, O God, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. Why was David able to do such great things and acts of worship? Because God was not unknown to him. He knew the heart of God because he had a heart for God. And he knew that God wasn't poor. He knew that God had all the resources of the universe. And if God said he wanted to do something through a man or woman, God didn't need anyone's permission to do it. And he didn't need anyone to fund it. That's the point. And he says it there. He says it so clearly. Wealth and honor come from you. Wealth and honor come from you. Not not as if we get up in the pulpit and say, oh, we need wealth. If we don't have wealth, we can't pay our bills. No, God is not poor. God has the riches of the universe, and he makes them available to us according to his will. Amen? Amen. So, wonderful praise. David singing this praise to the Lord God of Israel, crying out in prayer to the Lord God of Israel. And if you read this prayer, you'll realize he was humbled by how the Lord had graciously and abundantly provided these resources. You ever been humbled by how good God is? Have you ever looked at your bank statement and said, God, you're so good to me? Some of you guys are saying, God, I need you to be a little better. No, I'm kidding. No, but God is so good to us. I mean, look at what we have in in our country. Look at what what we're experiencing in and, and you have to at least stop a moment and realize your God is good. He's good to you. He's good to us. He provides great things and 
wonderful, abundant blessings. David was humbled by this truth, and you should be humbled. You really, we all should be humbled by God's greatness and his goodness toward us. He was filled with joy by how the people had followed his example in consecration of the Lord, or to the Lord. And he prayed that the people would remain generous in their giving and loyal to the Lord. Let's continue. It says, but who am I? Who am I? You see that humble heart. David understood he didn't deserve the blessings of God. He understood that completely. As we've said, he was humbled by how the Lord had graciously and abundantly provided these resources. Let's read just verses 14 through 16. But who am I? And who are my people? That we should be able to give as generously as this. Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight, as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Our Lord, or O Lord, our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. Now, why is that important? Because when we give, whether it's giving to missions or to the needy or to support a church, when you give out of the abundance that God has given you, it's real easy to get into this way of thinking that, well, God, God blesses me, and I take 100% of my money, and I divide 10%, and I give that back to God. And a lot of people do that, and that's fine. If that's how the Lord is leading you, that's wonderful. That's great. But never think for a minute that God doesn't own all of it, that the 100% belongs to him. See, I think we need to change our perspective. The 90 doesn't belong to you, and God gets the 10. All of it belongs to him. So whatever you give back to him, he gave you anyway. It belongs to him anyway. Now, I'm not preaching some kind of a crazy doctrine where you, you know, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, Jesus did tell one particular individual to do that, and uh, he couldn't. He had a hard time with that. But it's true that all of us have opportunities to give. If you're giving, thinking about you have needs, you need to remember that God meets your needs. Now, I can tell you this from experience. If God leads you to meet someone else's needs, it's not going to be at your expense. You may make a sacrifice, but like it's not as if you're going to give something up, someone else is going to be blessed, and now you've given up your blessing. Like, you're not going to be blessed now because you took the blessing that God gave you and you gave it to somebody else, you forfeited your blessing. That's not the way it works with God. You can't outgive God. You give to someone else, you bless them, and God abundantly blesses you. Or have we forgotten the teachings that talk about the 100-fold, the 10-fold, the 100-fold blessing? Listen, I don't suggest anyone be motivated to give so that they can get 100 times back. That would be materialism. I'm suggesting that as God leads you to give, give freely knowing you will always be blessed because it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Amen? These are all New Testament and Old Testament principles, so we shouldn't be surprised. Beautiful principles, though. He's also, as we've seen, as we've said, and as we'll see, filled with joy because everyone had listened and followed his example. Look at verse 17. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent, and now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. 
So he was blessed by them following his example of worshiping God and giving to the work. He was blessed. He also prayed that the people would remain generous in their giving and loyal to the Lord. In verse 18, when he says, O Lord, our God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. That is a very important prayer because he wants them to not just trust God and give today, but to live their whole lives trusting God and giving as he leads. And by the way, that is the path of blessing for any child of God. To each day ask, Lord, how will you have me today? Give of my talent, give of my time, give of my treasure. You need to be led of the Lord. No pastor should ever tell you how to give. You should be led of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why we don't receive offerings at Calvary Chapel. We allow the Holy Spirit to lead you individually through your relationship with God. And if you don't have a relationship with God, you probably shouldn't be giving anything but your life to him first. And if you do have a relationship with God, then I trust, we trust, that God is more than capable of communicating to you where and how he wants you to give. You don't need me to give that advice, okay? This is called walking by the Spirit. You know, a church can walk in the Spirit too, not just individuals. And when you trust God with your resources, you know what happens? You don't have any problem with resources because God is able to meet our needs exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or even think to ask. And that's been my personal experience in my life. It's been our experience here at this church. And we're going to continue to trust God with his resources. Can I hear an amen? Amen. So, then he goes on in verse 19, praying that Solomon would be wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord, because that is the path to success. He says, and give my son Solomon, there's something so precious when a father prays for a son, and give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, requirements, and decrees, and to do everything to build the palatial structure for which I have provided. So, this is all good stuff. He wants his son to be faithful to keep the law of the Lord. He wants his son to be faithful to build the temple of the Lord. But he knows it starts with a relationship with God. Then it says in verse 20 that David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. So they all praise the Lord the God of their fathers, they bowed low and fell prostrate, that is, on their faces, before the Lord, before the Lord and the king. And there you have this beautiful picture of a man after God's own heart, praising God and all the people following his wonderful example. Then we get to verse 21. And here David publicly announced that Solomon would succeed him as king over Israel. So, let's read verses 21 through the first part of 22. The next day, they made sacrifices to the Lord and presented burnt offerings to him, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, and a thousand male lambs, together with their drink offerings and other sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. They ate and drank with great joy in the presence of the Lord that day. So, this is a feast day, a time of celebration, as David made sacrifices to the Lord. And then we see in the latter part of verse 22 something interesting. Then they acknowledged Solomon, son of David, as king a second time. You see, he had already been declared king. This is sort of a confirmation of that. They acknowledged Solomon, son of David, as king a second time, anointing him before the Lord to be ruler 
and Zadok to be priest. So Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king, excuse me, sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of his father David. He prospered and all Israel obeyed him and all the officers and mighty men as well as all of King David's sons pledged their submission to King Solomon and the Lord highly exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him royal splendor such as no king over Israel ever had before. So without getting into the details, it's important to know the Lord had already chosen Solomon to be David's successor. In 2 Samuel, we read of the accounts of God communicating through the prophet Nathan that Solomon would be king. In fact, Nathan delivered this promise from the Lord before Solomon was even born. Do you know something? God has a plan for you, and that plan has been in place since before you were born. Jeremiah talked about this while he was in the womb. God was already planning what would happen in Jeremiah's life. And and think about John the Baptist, who was anointed with the Spirit while he was still in his mother's womb. And how about the scripture that says that God has plans for us, right? He saved us from the beginning of the foundation of the world. Before creation, God's plans were in place. But it's important to know this was always God's plan. Nathan confirmed the Lord's choice of Solomon after he was born to Bathsheba. And the Lord named Solomon Jedidiah, which in Hebrew means loved by the Lord. And Nathan and Bathsheba were aware that David had chosen him as as his successor. So there's not any question about who's going to be king. And yet there were other individuals, sons of David, who tried to be king. And yet we know Solomon was called by God to be king. David later swore to his wife Bathsheba that Solomon would be his successor. And David later confirmed the Lord's word directly to Solomon as well. We saw that in chapter 22 of this very book. Now, in 1 Kings, in chapter 1, I'm not going to turn there. I'll summarize it. Solomon had already been acknowledged and anointed as king over Israel, as I've said. He was given the necessary religious and military support to become king. Zadok was one of Israel's two high priests, and Benaniah was there. He was the commander of the king's private bodyguard. Nathan was a prophet of the Lord and the spiritual advisor to the king. And so the the prophet was there, the, the, the military leaders were there, the high priest was there, and all of them supported Solomon. Zadok and Nathan publicly anointed, this is the second time they're doing it, but they had publicly anointed Solomon to succeed David as king of Israel. What you do need to know is that David resigned his position as king and elevated Solomon as his immediate successor in the last year of his life. No doubt he was elderly, had some health problems, as we'll see later on, and it was the smart thing to do. It also gave his son a chance to be king while David was still alive, which was an important transition for the people and for him. And so Solomon received the approval and the support of the people of Jerusalem. And now he sat, formally sat, on the throne of David as king over all Israel. And Solomon was successful. He was very successful as king. And the people willingly submitted to him. He was a great king. And the leaders of all Israel and and all of David's other sons, they pledged their loyalty. We'll see a little bit later. Some of them changed their mind after David died. That tends to happen during a time of transition of power. In fact, David's eldest son, Adonijah, had assumed that he would succeed his father for some reason in 1 Kings chapter 1. But Adonijah failed in his attempt to succeed his father as king of Israel, and so 
he had to back down. Finally, we see in verses 26 through 28, and by the way, just in verse 25, that one thing it said there, it said, the Lord blessed Solomon above and beyond the blessings bestowed upon Saul and David, the prior kings. He's the third king, and he's blessed abundantly above them. And David was greatly blessed, so you can imagine. Well, then we read in verses 26 through 28 that David, son of Jesse, was king over all Israel. He ruled over Israel 40 years, seven in Hebron, and 33 in Jerusalem. He died in a good old age, having enjoyed long life, wealth, and honor. His son Solomon succeeded him as king. So just stop there for a minute. David died trusting in faith, trusting in the Lord at the age of 70 years old. Now you're thinking, good old age. I'm hoping to live a little little bit longer than 70. Some of you guys in your 60s or some of you in your 70s are saying, how is that a good old age? Well, obviously, a couple of things to consider. Those are difficult times to be alive. People generally at that point did not live that long. In addition to that, David lived a rough life. I'm sure that he, his body was pretty broken down by that point. But anyway, David had reigned as king over Israel for a total of 40 years. He was 30 years old when he became king over Judah. Uh, he uh, reigned for seven and a half years over Judah at Hebron, and he reigned for 33 years over all Israel and Judah at Jerusalem. Dying at a good old age, he enjoyed a long life, wealth, and honor. Had nothing to complain about. You know, you hope you get to the end of your life. Actually, you should already be, regardless of your age, at a place in life where if the Lord called you home tomorrow, you could say that you died in a good old age and enjoyed a long life, wealth, and honor. You, you would hope, regardless of your age, you could say that. But he rested with his fathers in Sheol, the place of the dead, waiting with anticipation for the promised Messiah, the son of David. Now, this word, he rested with his fathers. That's a subtle reference to the afterlife called Sheol or Hades. In fact, the place of departed spirits was later called Abraham's bosom in Luke chapter 16, verse 22. This is where all of the righteous dead went and waited for Messiah to come and lead them out of captivity and into the presence of the Lord, which took place after the resurrection. Solomon succeeded his father David as king over Israel, as we see in verse 28. And we close with verses 29 through 30. And we read, As for the events of King David's reign, from beginning to end, they are written in the records of Samuel the seer, the records of Nathan the prophet, the records of Gad the seer, together with the details of his reign and power, and the circumstances that surrounded him, and Israel, and the kingdoms of all the other lands. Oh, the author closes his book, listing the historical sources that he used to compile the record of events from the reign of David. The prophets kept written records. You have the records of Samuel the seer. That would be First and Second Samuel, by the way. We have those books. We don't have the books of Nathan the prophet and Gad the seer. We have portions, obviously, but we don't have the books. Uh, the records of David's reign and the circumstances concerning him, uh, the records of his reign and his kingdom, uh, the kingdom of Israel and the surrounding kings, the chronicles of the kings. These things were preserved, and they were placed by Ezra in the books of First and Second Chronicles, specifically First Chronicles, as it relates to David's reign. So all of the historical sources were available to Ezra, and what Ezra did years later, okay, because David lived around 1000 BC, and, and Ezra is writing this book and presenting this material five or six hundred years later, about five hundred years later, 
Uh, no, five or six hundred years later, between five and six hundred years. So this material has been compiled from extant sources, from texts that were available to him. They kept really good records. And so we can trust the Word of God. We can glean from the Word of God all these wonderful lessons, knowing that we can trust God's Word and knowing that we can always depend on God to meet our needs. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for your abundant provision. We thank you for your many blessings, and we thank you for your grace. May you continue to work through us and in us, and may you provide for each and every one of our needs. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.